Well, if you have your Bibles with you this afternoon, I invite you to turn to Psalm 44. We'll be considering the first 16 verses of that psalm as we meditate briefly on it this afternoon. Because Psalm 44 is just lengthy enough that I'm going to break it up into two parts, a little more manageable for our brief devotional purposes on these third Lord's Days. So today I'm going to lead us, as I said, through the first 16 verses, and next time we'll meditate on the rest of the psalm, Lord willing. The caption of the psalm states, To the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. As we've noted many times before, to the choir master indicates that whoever wrote this wrote it with public worship in the temple in mind originally. It was intended by the composer to be sung in the temple. A maskil is thought to be a liturgical or musical notation, possibly telling the original singer something about how it was to be sung. Uh, the term is translated into the Greek of the Septuagint, that ancient translation of the Hebrew text into the Greek. Uh, it's translated into the Greek as ode. It's the word from which we get ode, if you've ever heard, you know, ode to a flower. Or uh, think of, of uh, Robert Burns' poem, Ode to a Louse, where he, uh, where he was sitting in church and he saw a louse in the hair of the woman in front of him and he wrote this poem about this wicked little beastie that was in the, in the hair of this woman in front of him in church. <clears throat> ode, ode. It's the word that Paul uses... Uh, in Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16 when he says that we are to sing spiritual songs. It's the word that's translated as songs there. And uh, so we see from Paul's historical context that he had the Psalms of the Bible in mind when he commanded God's people to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, the hymns being another term that's used in the Septuagint to describe some of the uh, psalms. So it was a common Greek term used to translate these notational terms uh, in the Hebrew. So it's a it's an ode, it's a, a masculine of the sons of Korah. So then that brings us then to the statement of the sons of Korah. That indicates this was a song probably written by Levites of the clan of Korah. Uh, those Korahites, the clan of Korah, uh, were those particular clan they were the particular clan of the tribe of Levi who had the responsibility of singing in the temple. And so that would make sense that maybe some of them would become songwriters as they would write these psalms to be sung in the temple. The psalm alternates between the use of the plural we and us and the singular I and me, which some have taken to mean it was meant to be sung antiphonally, which is just a technical term meaning some people sing over here, then some people sing over here, and they kind of sing back and forth. And in this case, it would be one person. Some think it was maybe a war leader or the king, but it could easily have been a Levite who was singing on behalf of a war leader or king, and maybe singing a part, and then the rest of the Levites in the temple, the Korahites, singing the other parts. The first eight verses recount God's past faithfulness to Israel, particularly in regard to the defeat of their enemies. We just sang about that in the first part of Psalm 44 a few minutes ago. Verses 9 through 16 then lament a recent loss. Verses 17 through 26, or that's what we'll handle next time, Lord willing, 
Uh, they state that this difficult providence has not come because of a lack of faithfulness on Israel's part. Uh, commonly in the Old Testament, we find that a military defeat for Israel meant that they had been unfaithful to the Lord. But we read in Scripture that God doesn't just bring calamity upon us, difficulty in our lives, afflictions, only because we have been bad, only because we have strayed uh, from righteousness, but sometimes it's for other purposes, to show His strength in our weakness, to teach us to depend more on Him, things like that, to uh, build us up, to show us that our faith is genuine. And that seems to be part of what's going on here, because at least the psalm will say that the reason that this calamity has come upon Israel is not because of faithfulness in this particular case, or unfaithfulness, I should say, in this particular case. The psalm concludes with a prayer for the Lord's aid. So we're going to deal with the first 16 verses. The first uh, verse, of course, verse one, verses 1 through 8, really, actually recount God's past faithfulness. So the psalmist writes in verse 1, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. Israel could hear from their elders, and they could read the testimony of their ancestors and, the, and hear these testimonies passed down from generation to generation. And they could read the scriptures to learn what God had done for them in the past. Particularly, as this psalm will mention, he has driven out the heathen nations and settled Israel in the land of Canaan. Now we know this familiar account from after the Exodus that the people of Israel were in the wilderness for 40 years because of their unfaithfulness and then uh, Moses prepared them for entering into the land right before he died and then under Joshua they entered the land and in the time of Joshua and the judges they were manifesting more and more this, uh, this conquest of the land. You with your own hand, the psalmist says, drove out the nations but them you planted. So the them there is Israel. So he drove out the nations, but planted the sons of Israel, the people of his covenant, his visible church at the time in the land. From their time in Egypt with the Egyptians onward, God afflicted those who persecuted his people, but set his people free by his mighty power. And so that is what the scripture says, beginning in the second half of verse 2. You afflicted the peoples, by them you set free, or but them you set free. So again, the them is Israel. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. So as the psalmist is setting this up to talk about a time of defeat, he's recognizing we didn't win by our own strength of arms, not by our own hands in the past, nor did we lose by our own hands in the past. This has to do with whether God is delighted in us or not right now, uh, whether God is desiring to support us. And so again, he'll say later, it's not because they have, they've been unfaithful in this particular case, but God, for his good purposes, has brought a loss upon Israel. This is not only true historically of the nation of Israel, but true of the church. 
that God has established and preserved his people time and again, defeating those who have persecuted them because of his delight in his people. And then at times he allows their affliction, again, not necessarily because of their unfaithfulness, but because he has good purposes in that affliction. It's through the Lord's kingship that his people ultimately, though, are saved. And ultimately, that means Jesus Christ. So starting at verse 4, You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. You know, in the next psalm, as we were singing portions of Psalm 45 earlier today, we note a connection to what's being said there. Notice that in Psalm 45, uh, it's God's throne being established at the same time as it's His anointed throne being established. This is God the King. God in human flesh. And here, prophetically, the psalmist is saying, You are my King, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. Only in the Lord, only in King Jesus, can we have victory. As the psalm continues, verses 6 through 8, For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes, and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we give thanks to your name forever. And there's a selah there. That selah at the end of verse 8 tells the, the reader or the singer to pause and meditate on those words. It's not my bow that I should trust. I, my sword can't save me. It's not my own strength or any tool that I have at my disposal. It's only God that can save me. And he notes this. You have saved us from our foes. You've put to shame those who hate us. God, we have boasted continually. or In God, we have boasted continually. That's where our boasting needs to be. We must boast in God. As Paul tells us, all boasting is excluded except our boasting in Christ, right? We must boast in God continually and give thanks to His name forever. But after recounting the Lord's faithfulness in the past, the defeat of His people's enemies in past generations, the psalmist turns to the present circumstances of Israel. A military defeat that he cannot attribute to the waywardness of Israel. Sometimes that's the case. We see setbacks for the church. And sometimes it's because of our unfaithfulness. Other times God is doing something else. It's not because of the church's unfaithfulness. Think of the persecution that many of our brothers and sisters are under in other parts of the world. Not because they're lacking faithfulness, but often because they are being faithful. And God is doing great things through that. So notice again, God doesn't promise us health and wealth and prosperity and peace and everything we want and flowers and butterflies every day uh, if we're faithful Christians. Sometimes it's going to be hard. In fact, Jesus told us to expect that in a fallen world. But here in verses 9 and 10, But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. Notice the, the key there. If God goes out with the armies of Israel, they win. But here, in this case, they've lost, so God must not have gone out with them, as it were. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. Much like Job, who was unaware 
of anything he had particularly done to bring this calamity upon himself, the psalmist here is, is rather confused that God has seemingly forsaken Israel and not given aid in time of battle because he's not aware of anything in this generation that they're particularly doing to deserve God removing his protection from them. Instead, many of them have been slaughtered or captured, sold as slaves even. Verses 11 through 14, You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. It's kind of a way of saying it was easy for the enemies to win. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. The apparent reliance of Israel on the Lord looks as if it is unfounded and foolish in this case. God's people are for a time a laughingstock among the nations. Certainly, we can see many times when that happens to God's people in our own generations. We see that it looks like we're the laughingstock because we put our confidence in the Lord. What does it get us? And yet, of course, eternally it gains us everything. And Jesus tells us what does it profit a man to gain the world if he loses his soul. The psalmist takes this condition rather personally. Verses 15 and 16 says, All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. So it's, he's personally taking it uh, as if this is a terrible thing, not just for the whole nation together, but for him personally. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger, he's, he feels shame. God not only brings difficulties upon his people because of their sins, as this psalm clearly will say. He's pleased to show his strength in our weakness. 2 Corinthians 12.9 My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Sometimes if you're afflicted, yes, certainly examine yourself and see if there is anything that you have done to bring this on yourself. When we see calamity coming upon the church in general, it's appropriate for us to pray and fast and see if the Lord will reveal if there's something uh, going on that, that we need to correct. But sometimes God simply is pleased to show His strength in our weakness. I think that's what's going on in places like China, for example, where the church is so persecuted and yet it flourishes. God is allowing the persecution so that he can show this is my strength that builds my church, not man's strength. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 it tells us that God is pleased to show the genuineness of our faith through trials. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God allows trials to come upon his people so that we know that our faith is genuine as it survives the trial. God does it for our sakes, to build up our confidence in Him and to know that we have true faith. Romans 5, 3-4 tells us that suffering builds character. Sometimes God just wants to build our character. Suffering builds character, making us more like Christ. And of course the Lord 
brought Jesus' suffering upon him, not because of anything he did wrong, but for the sake of his people. Well, next time we'll deal more with that as we conclude the psalm. But for now, let's turn to the next selection of Psalm 44. We'll turn in our Psalters to Psalm 44b. Why don't we stand together and we'll sing Psalm 44b as we conclude our worship service this afternoon.